Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. This is one of the many talks in the archives of the Society recorded over nearly two decades from 1973 until 1980 and now available for you through the Society's website. Today we're listening to Lieutenant Commander Watt Roberts describing some of his early days as seen from a midshipman's journal. I am shattered to see um, Captain Hinchliff in the audience <laughs> as he, he practically owned the Mediterranean for all of 1941. He was everywhere where the things were happening. And the tiny little bit that I'll be able to tell you is, is just nothing compared with what he could tell you. So obviously you've got the wrong speaker. <laughs> However, to go back to the beginning, uh, I was asked to stand in tonight, I was given plenty of warning, I'm not making excuses, I didn't have any warning, but I was asked to stand in tonight and I thought about it a bit and then I remembered I've got a journal. One of the terrible things that happens to midshipmen is that they're made to keep journals and I've still got it. So I thought, well, I'll be able to dig something out of the old journal. So here I am. Now the beauty of it is that I can stop at any time you like. As soon as you start looking bored or go to sleep, I'll just stop. I can stop anywhere. <clears throat> right, to start at the beginning, and I, I won't come to the Mediterranean straight away, um, I went to sea in the middle of 1940. I joined the Canberra, the gun room there, had only been in the ship a very short time when about four or five of us were put in a merchant ship, the Orion, the passenger ship, the Orion, which had not been gutted or anything, and um, sent oh, to India, and then from India to South Africa, from South Africa to West Africa, from West Africa to Liverpool, where we found the Australia. All this took about three or four months, so... My first three or four months at sea were spent in very comfortable circumstances. Absolutely beautiful it was. But then, of course, we got to the Australia and things weren't too good. Now, what I had in mind, when I say things weren't too good, we were treated like midshipmen again instead of first-class passengers. <laughs> what I had in mind was to read odd extracts from this journal uh, if you I'd like you to keep in mind that when this was written I was 17 and 18 years old. Uh, my prose is not perfect by a long way, but it is quite interesting here and there, if I can find the bits, here and there it's quite interesting to find out opinions given at the time, because we forget things that happened 30 and 40 years ago change in the light of later experience and you forget quite how things are and then suddenly as I say I haven't looked at this for years a uh, few things were a bit different from what I expected anyway I'll just see what I can find here I joined the Australia she was in dock in Liverpool and uh, 
after we'd been there for a while, we were sent to, some of us got a long weekend, and anyway, I went to see some relatives. And uh, I was clever enough to be away with some relatives when Liverpool got done. And I write here, as soon as I arrived in Liverpool, and this is the 23rd of December, 1940, it would have been obvious to me that there had been some extensive raids, even if I had not seen about them in the papers. Coming back to the ship in a taxi, see, I could afford taxis in those days, that's something, I, I've got no recollection that I could afford a taxi. I noticed whole blocks of buildings which had been devastated, and the taxi was forced to take a very roundabout course through, through streets being blocked by bomb craters and rubble. The dock buildings around the ship were badly smashed in many places and a large number of fires, many of which had got completely out of control, control had been caused by incendiaries. One bomb had dropped on the dock gates just off our port quarter and another, weighing about a ton, how I knew this I don't know, and about three feet in diameter had landed between the ship's side and the dock on the starboard side just forward of S1 four-inch gun. Providentially the dock had been flooded to a depth of about 17 feet three days previously, and the water had slowed up the bomb so much that only the tail part exploded. I, I don't know whether that's right or not, but that's what I thought. Had it exploded, the ship would probably have been too badly damaged to repair. So anyway, the ship was a bit lucky. A thing that is noticeable that I'd kind of forgotten was that sort of normal speeds around the place were in the order of 23, 24, 25 knots. Never thought anything of it. Um, even with the uh, troop convoys, the big convoys that the, uh, the eight-inch cruisers uh, looked after, uh, they were up around the 22, 23 knots, and, and of course occasionally you'd get even faster ones if you had the Queen's and no one else, well, goodness, you could, you could go along at about 28 in those circumstances. But these days, any time a ship does over about 14 knots, everybody gets excited and goes and looks over the side and says, gee, isn't this amazing, we're doing 18 knots? And, of course, lots of money being spent on fuel and so on. Another point is, um, think how clever the little backroom boys were, I don't mean the backroom boys particularly, the uh, organisers were in getting sufficient oil fuel to us all the time. Wherever we went, anywhere in the world, there was always a darn tanker somewhere that you could go alongside and top up from. Well, in those days, these days, I just took it for granted. Um, but now I look back and I, I think of the enormous organisation that must have gone into getting that oil from the Persian Gulf and to wherever the ships needed it. And uh, half the time nobody knew where the ships were going to be in a month's time, so it wasn't as if you could really plan ahead. I, I think it was remarkable. It's just a... a now, um, every now and again we were required to write a paper. And here is a paper which says, Heavy Cruiser versus Pocket Battleship. I might say when you're 17 or 18 you probably remember you're quite invulnerable and quite immortal <laughs> and it didn't really worry me much that you know after all we, we only missed uh, one of the pocket battleships the Shear, the Admiral Shear 
we only missed her by, um, in fact, here it is. The fact that on the 22nd of February we turned southeast and proceeded at 27 knots in the hope of finding, fighting, and disabling the German pocket battleship Admiral Scheer something raised the question of how a heavy cruiser would fare in a single combat, in single combat with such a ship. Well, I know what the answer is now, but I obviously didn't then. <laughs> Most people seem to base their judgment on the outcome of the Battle of the Plate, which seems to me to be definitely the wrong thing to do. Admittedly, the intervention of the light cruisers probably saved Exeter from sinking, but one must not forget that she attacked out of necessity at an inopportune hour, namely just after sunrise, which gave speed 10 to 12 hours of daylight in which to finish her off. Right. Here I am, I'm, I'm saying we could use our speed, we could go in and attack and we'd only have to be under 11 inch fire for six or seven minutes before our eight inch came within range. <laughs> However, it might be reasonably expected that if a heavy cruiser, which had close reinforcements, tomorrow they were due, I might say, close reinforcements should have sighted the radar, she would have shot, maneuvered it into the afterglow of the sun and then attacked and so on and so forth. In this manner, the cruiser would have hoped to damage the radar, radar as much as possible, perhaps reducing its speed, while she herself would have got off comparatively lightly. By morning, the reinforcements summoned would have arrived and the radar's position would have been bad. In conclusion, ah, in conclusion, it seems that a heavy cruiser would not be a match for a pocket battleship in a single open combat but by using the right tactics and getting reinforcements to help finish off the job, a heavy cruiser could cause the captain of a pocket battleship a great deal of worry and trouble. Right, so that was a 17-year-old's idea of um, how we'd fight the war, how we'd fight a pocket battleship. Uh, here's a bit I've marked, quite interestingly. The next day we, we're, once again, still in the Australia, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, and when I say the middle of the Indian Ocean, off the African coast, and about two pages back there'd been a ship sunk. Next day, mails which we had picked up in Durban for Hawkins were transferred to her. She stopped about half a mile from our starboard quarter and sent her pinnace over to pick them up, and so on. You know, there were submarines around. And we both of us stopped. I don't remember that, but this is right. My memory's wrong. Now we're still in the Australia. Um, we, um, I might say, having left Liverpool, we went uh, via the Cape um, uh, up to um, India. Then our chief of naval staff, um, Ragnar Colvin, I think it was at that time. He was attending some sort of conference in Singapore. And we picked him up, uh, would have been in March 41, and brought him back to Australia. Uh, it was quite interesting that we came back all the way 
from Singapore to Sydney. I guess we fueled in Darwin. I could find the details in here, no doubt. Uh, at 25 knots through the reef, we didn't stop at night. We had no radar, of course. Um, I think 25 knots through the reef without any radar and with uh, whatever navigational aids were available in 1941 wasn't a bad effort. I remember old Jackie Raymond was the uh, navigating officer and I was his, what was known as his tanky. And uh, I know I did a bit of sleeping, but he didn't go to bed at all during that passage through the reef, which took about, I think, you know, from um, Torres Strait uh, till we were clear would have been a couple of days, I guess. Uh, then we went over to New Zealand and picked up a convoy. Now, here's quite an interesting one. Um, we, um, in company with Hobart, <coughs> we proceeded to New Zealand. Having cleared the heads, we altered, each ship altered 15 degrees outwards to an easy visual signalling distance. Thus, we proceeded towards Wellington at 24 knots. There you are, 24 knots, no trouble. We were there the next day or something. Um, the voyage continued uneventfully until the last afternoon at about 13.30 Hobart's plane was catapulted off for a short height finding exercise and a few moments later our aircraft followed. Remember the old pusses duck we had in those ships? I remember this bit well. Funny how things stick in your mind. I hadn't seen the aeroplane crash before. Uh, a few moments later our plane followed. Then came disaster. Our aircraft, after leaving the catapult, did not seem to have flying speed. It dropped and its tail hit the water. It rose, hit the water again, and then bounced once more. For a long moment, it seemed as if the plane might be landed safely, but the port wingtip float caught in a wave and the plane whipped over onto its port side, nose under. The ship altered course to port and circled round where the plane was. Hobart's aircraft did a very fine landing on the choppy sea and was on the spot in a few seconds. I remember that, he just put the thing straight down, splat. I just didn't, it was like a helicopter. Uh, soon after she got there, our plane sank, very unfortunately taking our pilot with her, a loss which was felt throughout the ship. He was an RN fellow, Jackie Hone. But I remember him, you know, he was old. He would have been about 22 or something like that. <laughs> and he was terribly smooth. Oh, tremendously smooth. And he always had all the girls he wanted. And we used to look on him with great admiration and wish that he'd let us have some of the uglier ones, but he never did. <laughs> now, I have to start thinking about uh, getting to the Mediterranean. This is when I, I, I think when we get to the Mediterranean, I'll turn over to Captain Hinchliffe. There's <coughs> not much point in my telling you about it. He was in Greece and Crete and everywhere, weren't you? <coughs> yes, you were. <coughs> in fact, you were, you had a, an embarking party there, or an embarkation party. You did indeed. Anyway, I won't embarrass him. Now, then we left in, in about... Um, August, left the Australia, having been at sea for about a year, and now the remarkable thing is that I had the impression 
that I've been in the Mediterranean a long, long time. In fact, I was only there in RN Destroyer for about 12 weeks. But you know how time, when you're old, time goes like that, and when you're young, time is very, uh, very slow moving, and, and so much was happening. Right. Finally, I joined a destroyer, Kingston, with um, Philip Somerville in command. And who was the Jimmy? Uh, K. Kilby? Kilby? Kirby? Kirby. Kilby. Anyway, um, just give you a quick anecdote the ship that I'm about to talk about, the captain, uh, Philip Somerville, was uh, a nephew of the Admiral. Um, he was one of Mountbatten's captains. You may or may not have realized that the 5th Flotilla, which was the K-boats, uh, was commissioned by Mountbatten in Kelly. And uh, he had a very free hand. Uh, uh, he always had tremendous influence for one reason or another. I suppose being able to ring up the king and call him George was a help. Uh, <laughs> but, it, of course, a terribly capable fellow too. Don't think I'm knocking him in any shape or form. Uh, and he virtually hand-picked his captains and most of his officers in the cave flotilla. Uh, and um, Philip Somerville, the time I joined the ship was a lieutenant commander, um, fairly well decorated. He had commissioned the ship in 39. He remained in her until he was killed and the ship lost in the middle of 42. Uh, in that time, he was promoted commander about halfway through. But by the time he was killed, he had two DSOs and three DSCs. She had had a very, very active war. And uh, I often wonder, he, he, I found him absolutely charming, uh, much more charming than our Australian senior officers. But funnily enough, the RN chaps always seem to be very good to Australians. Uh, but I often wonder whether he ever sat down and thought, well, there's no way I'm going to survive this war because you know, so much had happened to him in those first two and a half years before he was killed. Uh, it was nearly time that he had a rest, I reckon, but of course it was too late. Um, my first impression of a destroyer, we slipped to proceed out of harbour. I was greatly impressed with the extreme manoeuvrability of the destroyers as we got underway. Being used to an 8-inch cruiser, I was delighted and amazed to see the speed with which they turned on their screws and their extraordinary acceleration from a standstill to 12 or 15 knots. That, of course, you still get that same feeling, although there's not much in the way of destroyers left. <coughs> we carried out a sweep with the battleships Queen Elizabeth, Barham and Valiant. The Barham was sunk not long afterwards. I did not see it, but Nizam was on the screen. Were you still in Nizam then, Max? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Hobart was in the Mediterranean at that time. She was uh, 
the uh, main Australian um, representative. Napier and Nizam were there. Um, and the V's and W's were just leaving. They, they'd, um, they'd just uh, gone. Uh, I'll be able to get on to some proper reading in a moment. I'm sorry I'm just flipping pages over. It gets more interesting. Here, here's one for you. Any techos in the audience? I was interested to see that we, we, the ship was uh, degassed. We proceeded to the DG range. I was interested to see the method used. In DG ranges that I have seen, and this is 1941, I don't know how many I'd seen, the ship is required to steam back and forth over a coil several times, which is exactly what happens here now. But here the ship remains stationary and the coil mounted on a barge was moved slowly around her. Now there's something I just hadn't thought of, I'd forgotten. I've never heard of it, but there it is, I wrote it, so it must be true. This was the time when the Australian troops were being taken out of Tobruk and being replaced by British troops of various regiments. And I won't go into the details, obviously, but we did several runs back and forth from Tobruk. Just give you a, a quick rundown of just one run. We slipped at 5.30 in the morning, proceeded out of harbour to Tobruk in company with Kandahar, Latona, which was a fast mine sweet layer, and Hasty. Disposed in line abreast, seven cables apart, proceeding at 18 knots, zigzagging. We fiddled about, a few exercises, the passage was completely uneventful, nothing of any interest occurred. Twice during the afternoon unidentified aircraft were sighted, but we assumed that these were our fighter escort. Action stations at dusk, the squadron increased speed. Doesn't say to what speed, but I think we used to do about 28. Slowed down at 2200. Now that's you know, it wasn't much different from going up to Newcastle or somewhere, quite honestly. You know, we left at 5 o'clock in the morning, 18 knots, and we were there at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, quarter to 11, 22.45, entered the harbour. It was my first visit to Tobruk Harbour, and I found it an eerie business. It was a calm, cloudless night, and by the light of the stars, I could make out the low-lying boundary of the harbour closing in around us as we pushed further in. The water was mirror-like in its flatness and there was no sound save the gentle splashing of our movement through the water as we moved slow ahead. As we slipped towards our berth, which was a sunken ship, certain sounds became distinguishable. The distant popping of an occasional rifle or machine gun and now and again one of the horizons would be illuminated by the flash of some bigger gun miles away. I remember thinking it was just like a war movie. You know, there was the horizon blinking and in the distance machine guns and rifles going off. It, it was you know, just like the movies. Uh, we secured almost in silence and immediately began to disembark troops and stores. Um, while this was going on, flares suddenly broke out to the eastward and immediately followed the flashes of heavy guns out to sea. 
and uh, this turned out to be the Ajax, Hobart and Neptune bombarding somewhere just, just up the coast. Went on for 20 minutes. We had 16, we embarked 16 stretcher cases, 30 walking wounded and 150 unwounded. Uh, during dawn action the following morning we heard that the Nat had been torpedoed east of Tobruk and Nizam and Kingston were dispatched to give her assistance but after we had been steaming towards her for about an hour we were ordered to rejoin. Somebody else had given her a hand. <coughs> Old Nizam was, had some sort of stability problem. All morning the sea had been getting worse and there was a heavy swell running when at 10.45 Nizam signalled man overboard. We turned and came up to windward of her and we saw then that there were several men in the water together with many life boys, pieces of kit and so forth. We picked up one man, a stoker who had jumped overboard from Nizam to assist those already in the water. When everyone had been picked up we proceeded. <coughs> We were all shocked when the final report came through from Nizam. Besides two men known to have been drowned, four were missing, and of the survivors, three were seriously injured. She sort of, I think it was a quartering sea, and, and she, she put her stern under and somehow slid under a, a swell, and, and all these poor devils who were sunning themselves on the quarterdeck uh, went over the side. And that was a standard to Brook Run that was uneventful. Um, I did several more to Brook Runs. Uh, we had none. I had none that were really eventful. If they were eventful, they were. Here we were coming back one morning, 25th of October. At 10.23 we passed Latona and three destroyers on opposite courses. Within 12 hours Latona was sunk. We heard when we got into Alex, that as soon as dusk came, she came under attack, and, and uh, that was the end of her. She was a lovely ship, too. Here's a nice little remark. Uh, later on in the afternoon, officer of the watch manoeuvres were carried out, and orders came from the leader that the midshipman in the ships should act as officer of the watch. It is seldom that I have learned so much in half an hour. That's all, didn't say anything else. Uh, we went into Farmagusta, which is um, a seaport in Cyprus. Secured to the port side, port side to the northern end of the jetty in the tiny harbour of Farmagusta. It was here that I got my first glimpse of what the Mediterranean must be like in peacetime. I saw some of the qualities which attract the praise of thousands of travellers. The island is slightly hilly, and wave upon wave of these, of those green undulations stagger the eye as they sweep to the blue of the horizon. How about that? The slopes which come down to the sea are planted with olive groves, and as I looked at them, I was overcome with a sense of unreality as I realised I was seeing exactly what ancient Greek and Roman heroes saw in their sea voyages hundreds of thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago. The actual harbour is beautiful to the extreme, and the beauty is, I think, enhanced by the very smallness of it. 
is a deep blue colour and very shallow and the bottom can be seen almost everywhere. The entrance is very small. Four destroyers could berth alongside the wharf but no more. I remember it well, it was a beautiful spot. One of these days I'll go back to the Mediterranean. Um, now, then we went, would you believe, to Malta. Now the funny thing is that at 0400 on the 24th of November, we proceeded out of harbour in company with the 7th Cruiser Squadron <coughs> and set our course in a westerly direction. Our speed during the day was 21 knots and it was increased to 27 after dusk. The object of this enterprise was for our force to link hands with Force K from Malta consisting of the cruisers Aurora, Penelope and the destroyers Lance and Lively. The force which had so successfully attacked a large Italian convoy some ten days before and we were to endeavour to intercept another convoy from Italy to Benghazi, <coughs> which consists of a destroyer and two large tankers. <coughs> By the beginning of the first watch, Tobruk was abeam, and a large number of gun flashes in that direction indicated a heavy raid was in progress. Dawn the following morning, <coughs> an interesting point, while I'm fiddling about here, uh, <coughs> Force K was being based on Malta for some time, when I say some time, a couple of weeks I guess, and when we went back, Kingston, Kimberley, Ajax and Neptune, here, I found it here, uh, we were called Force B, and we went and worked out of Malta with Force K. Now every time Force K went out, they'd find Italians and Germans and clobber them. Every time we went out, we'd find nothing. I never saw a shot fired. Cunningham, in his book, A Sailor's Odyssey, he speaks of the work of Force B and Force K out of Malta, and in at no stage does he distinguish between the activities of the two forces. As far as he was concerned, he had two policemen in Malta and they were keeping the burglars away. And the fact that it was one policeman did it all the time and the other four policemen never got a shot just doesn't <coughs> appear in the book. And I guess Cunningham probably didn't really cross his mind either. Uh, but it certainly crossed my mind that damn Force K, they were always having, having a ball. And here we are, 27th of November, Force B, Ajax, Neptune, Kim Kimberley and Kingston proceeded out of harbour and set course for Malta. This is when, when we were first formed. We heard a report about enemy vessels and altered course and of course they weren't there. Next day, a very uneventful day, Malta was in sight when dawn broke. Now this is, to me, reasonably interesting um, because you know, we hear about Malta all the time, during the war and one thing and another. And this was the end of 1941. The war in the Mediterranean was, what, 18 months old then? Malta was in sight when dawn broke and coming up on the bridge, I found the force in line ahead with a pleasant looking green fawn land slipping by on our port side. 
At 8.30 the force proceeded into harbour, the destroyers leading. With uh, Kingston secured starboard side to something or other wharf. There were at least three large new and serviceable merchant ships in the Grand Harbour. Two of them were in dock, but more for convenience than for anything else, because all three were in perfect seagoing condition. I also noticed a very large merchantman, the Essex, lying alongside in bad condition due to, due to five direct hits, and the destroyer gallant with the bows blown off to B gun. <coughs> Apparently, it is hoped to repair her, and dockyard hands are working on her all the time. Considering the number of raids that the island has had, the bomb damage to houses and shops seems to be quite slight, far less than that which I saw in Liverpool last December. On the following day, we proceeded out in operation with Force K and... Uh, da, 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 uh, yeah. We went with Force K that time, but we split up after we, uh, after we uh, got clear. Uh, we expected to reach a certain point at sea and expecting to pass very close to that point after the time we arrived there were three distinct Italian forces. The first of these was comprised of a destroyer and a tanker, the second two six-inch cruisers and two merchant ships, and the third a battleship and three destroyers. And what happened? We didn't see a thing. Just imagine if we'd met a battleship and three destroyers. Good Lord. Uh, so that was it. Uh, however, before this happened, 1600 that afternoon, we were spotted by enemy torpedo reconnaissance aircraft. Seeing there's a little bit of action here, not much, I'll read it. <coughs> the cruisers were in light ahead, Kingston was on the starboard side of the screen. For a long time the aircraft circled around on the horizon, no doubt getting bearings, uh, DF bearings, to make sure of our position. During this time, Lively was trying to jam their radio signals, but without much success. Then they suddenly started coming up fast on the port quarter of the fleet. Almost immediately, everyone with guns that would bear opened fire, but none of the bursts went very near, either bursting far too high or sending up great spouts as they exploded in contact with the water. The range of about 5,000 yards, the two aircraft swept up the port side of the fleet, and as they came more abreast of us, their torpedoes could be plainly seen slung close beneath their sleek, streamlined bodies. At this moment, they suddenly turned in towards us. It was a breathless moment. At any second now, we would see the torpedoes fall into the sea and head for one of the cruisers. But then, several pom-poms opened fire. Their self-destroying shells burst short, but they had the desired effect. The aircraft seeing that veritable shower of little puffs springing into being just ahead of them decided that they had had enough they turned about and headed off at high speed anyway we got to our area we saw nothing uh, we had Wellington aircraft cooperating with us fitted with a thing called ASV which was a radar and ASV stood for anti-surface surface vessels At 6.30 the following morning, Force K entered harbour and they told us that after they had left us the previous night, they had encountered and destroyed the enemy convoy consisting of a tanker and a destroyer. 
We heard from later reports that the enemy force with the battleship had turned back at dusk on that same day. December the 1st. The Sydney was lost on November the 19th. This is 12 days later. The same morning, I was greatly shocked to hear of the loss of HMAS Sydney. in an action with an armed merchant raider off the west coast of Australia. Now that's not bad, you know, 12 days later we were in, we were in the Med and there wasn't, weren't any Australian ships around. Now listen to this. Apparently upon encountering the raider, Sydney closed to identify it. She must have been suspicious because a certain portion at least of her main armament was closed up in readiness. Somehow at very close range both ships fired simultaneously and Sydney's bridge and control top were wiped out. How on earth did I know that 12 days afterwards? I suppose they had radio in those days. Also, a big fire started amidships. However, she kept on firing by local control until finally the raider sank. But there were no survivors from the Sydney. So that was known in Malta 12 days after the event. Uh, now, another rather interesting little convoy there was a, a naval store ship a white ensign ship I might say uh, but a merchant ship called the Breckenshire which was quite a fast merchant ship 18 or 19 knots and she uh, had a marvellous career in the Mediterranean until she was finally sunk uh, quite naturally practically everything that went out there was sunk <coughs> um, she was a very sort of um, mascotish sort of ship, you know, everybody liked the Breckenshire. Um, and we, this is early December, 41, two ships, Kingston and Kimberley, took the Breckenshire, escorted the Breckenshire to Malta. Um, 18.2 knots, I say here. We passed an uneventful night, a thing which we'd hardly dared to hope for because it was brute, bright moonlight and we were at the furthest only 150 miles from enemy air bases. Then Neptune and Ajax joined us. At noon, I'll read this, <coughs> at noon a reconnaissance seaplane appeared on the horizon and began the now familiar circling around the 360 degrees of the compass, always a bit far out of range. 20 minutes later, Neptune opened ineffective fire at it, and her gun flashes were the herald of an interesting afternoon. Soon after, another seaplane appeared, and it and its friend kept up their interminable circling. It was evident that they were calling for bombers. The first one, all of which were JU-88s, that was a twin-engined uh, monoplane, fairly obviously, uh, came quite unexpectedly out of the sun, which was just before our starboard beam. Flew over the convoy at about 3,000 feet in a shallow dive. As he pulled out, he dropped a stick of bombs a few hundred yards off Breckenshire's port quarter. The barrage put up against him was very poor. <coughs> there was a lull then until 13.30, but we were ready for the next attack. Two JU-88s following close behind one another swept in on the same course, but a bit higher than the first one. Fire was opened as soon as they came into range, 
and they went through a terrific barrage and not only of four-inch shell. In the middle of the action, mystified by seeing huge black shell bursts accompanied by ear-splitting cracks, I noticed that Penelope and Aurora, that also joined us, by the way, Penelope and Aurora were putting up a six-inch barrage. So there you are. We use six-inch against aircraft in desperation. Never hit anything, of course. <coughs> the aircraft, however, dropped their bombs. They didn't hit anything either. Off the port and starboard quarters, respectively, of Breckenshire, and made off apparently unscathed. We had a long rest then. It was not until 1700 that another bomber made a similar attack on its fellows. And so on. At 7.15, there was another attack. Um, that was several aircraft this time. Uh, the final attack was when it was almost dark. The aircraft came up the port quarter and passed overhead at about 2,000 feet as bombs dropped just ahead of Breckenshire. I was very frightened during this episode. Kingston, being on the starboard bow of the screen, had the aircraft passing over her last. By that time, every ship in the convoy had spotted it and opened fire with everything they had. All around us, there seemed to be patches of water churned up by splitters and little splashes caused by point fives. But the worst of all were the tracer orlican shells, which could be plainly seen, making their apparently leisurely way towards us and ricocheting gracefully as they hit the water short. Others could be seen drifting quietly down towards us from the upper air, and we watched them fascinated until they burnt out, and we were left disconsolately wondering where they would land. Yeah. <laughs> um, got into harbour next morning. That was about it. Two runs to Malta I had all together, that's all. Uh, <coughs> not long afterwards, um, this day, I, I joined the Queen Elizabeth on December the 7th in order to do what were known as, well, sub-lieutenant's exams, exams for sub-lieutenant. <coughs> uh, here we are. Word, 18-year-old words of wisdom. This day, December the 8th, was a fateful one in the affairs of the world, for during the morning of it, Japan, scorning the declaration of war, flung her comparatively meagre strength against the might of the United States, hoping no doubt that with this one savage blow at the American fleet she might gain an advantage that would keep her ahead until her final victory. Japanese carrier-borne aircraft attacked the American fleet lying in Pearl Harbor. The only damage done was obviously that we didn't get all the drums straight away. The only damage done was a fire started on the battleship Oklahoma and a certain amount of destruction in the surrounding township. However, President Roosevelt gave out on the same afternoon that the American Navy had taken some hard blows, so there was probably a lot more damage done than reported at the time. Pretty smart, isn't it? How did I know that? However, at the beginning of a fight, the man who delivers the first <coughs> surprise attack always seems to be winning. But in the end, the victor turns out to be the man with the greatest hitting power and endurance. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, then you should use our website. You'll find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, 
and a range of e-books, monographs and ship's plans for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website homepage. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member, or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time.